0: Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Simon Taylor. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about how the world is continuing to move away from traditional payment methods such as cards or cash. This is not only on the consumer side, there's a lot of innovation on the B2B side as well. Is this movement only a good thing? Uh, Is there a financial inclusion angle here and will our wallets get completely swapped out for our mobile phones Before we get started, of course, we do want to tell you just a couple of things we're working on here at 11FS and hear a quick word from our sponsors. Hey folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers.
1: Temenos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked, and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest performing banks with cost-income ratios which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at temenos.com.
0: Alrighty, let's get started. My goodness, are we joined by some fantastic guests Uh, making a welcome return to FinTech Insider. We have the one and only Sophie Gibbard, who's Chief Growth Officer at OpenPaid. How are you doing, Sophie?
2: Super well. Glad to be back, Simon.
0: I'm so glad to have you back. And joining Sophie is another returner. We have uh, Keith Gross, who is the head of UK over at Plaid. How are you doing, Keith? Great to be here, Simon. Thanks for having me back always a pleasure and making a welcome return of course is miles Stevenson who is the CEO of modular how's it going miles fantastic thank you yeah great to be back again great to have you back and last but by no means least making a fintech insider debut uh we have Vegar I'm not gonna try and say your last name um who is chief commercial officer at Vips uh Vegar lovely to have you here how are you doing today
3: excellent thanks and uh, thanks for having me on the show
0: today Thank you so much, All Alrighty, well, let's just start by looking at how the industry's moved away from traditional payment methods. I don't know who wants to set me up here. Um, maybe um, Vigor might be worth starting with yourself. Um, you know, obviously, especially given the market you operate in, getting away from cash has been a big trend for quite some time.
3: Yeah, the Nordics have been uh, uh, top of the curve in uh, getting rid of uh, cash and being almost cash less even before the pandemics, and we had uh, less than 10% uh, cash share even before uh, the pandemic hit us. And I think we've seen a growth in new payment methods and digital payments uh, been uh, catapulting over the last few 18 months. And we'll get into that catapulting,
0: but are we not just uh, sort of lovers of cash. I mean, Miles, there's still, there's a good report by the FCA that suggested for the vulnerable, for uh, the financially excluded, for large parts of society, cash plays a very useful role. Um, but as the sort of, are we, are we addicted to it? Can we get away from it?
4: I think about it less about being addicted to it, but it is certainly embedded in the way we, we think and operate and therefore moving away from it requires not just the, the alternatives to be in place. But the way people think about it, the way they go about the business, the way businesses interact with consumers has to change. And that takes time. And, and therefore, I think it's going to take a long time, even when the alternatives are all fully in place for people to move away. And that's before you get to some of the challenges around inclusion and, and how people can work with cash around your know, difficult
0: situations. Yeah, Miles, the behavior change point is such a good one, isn't it? Um, Keith, I don't know if you want to have a stab at this, just sort of laying out the main big types of payments out there, because we've obviously had cards and cash for some time. There's a few other push and pull mechanisms out there. Um, But obviously, now there's the whole open banking thing on the horizon as well.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's worth thinking about it as cards is one type of transaction. And then you have checks as well. And those are more of the traditional offline methods. And then you have digital wallets and open banking payments Digital wallets being you know a PayPal type of example in terms of how you make a payment and open banking payments being the ability to make a payment directly from your bank account via an API plugged into all these other services. And I think you are seeing this big step function change in how people think about payments and the a shift away from cash post-COVID, I think is absolutely underway, but it will take time because it is, as Miles said, a, a consumer habit factor as well that you need to need to factor in. You do, Sophie. What are your thoughts on this? Is is
0: that a, a good summary of where we're at in the market? And, and uh, are there any? Is there anything we missed?
2: No, I. I well, I, I. I would mention the the, the COVID word, obviously. Uh, but, uh, that's the,
0: that that one, yeah.
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm sorry, but the, the truth is that as much as. Personally, I was using, uh, still cash before COVID. I, I, it has totally disappeared from my bag. So I, I think, um, this one has given us a massive push on like focusing on more and more e-commerce payments, but also even on using more Apple Pay, you know, or, or Google Pay, uh, for kids, kids benefits. <laughs> but, um, uh, I, I think like, what has happened in the last last 12 months has really accelerated our behavior towards cash. However, there is, of course, still use case for it. And financial inclusion, I think it's really important to... Um, to, to still say that, that cash helps people on a, on a day to day basis, you know, like at the beginning of COVID or at the middle of it, I don't know if you remember, but there were some shops that were starting saying no cash allowed. And then there were some organizations that were saying, yes, like that's, that's great. You don't want to, uh, to carry risk, but think about all the people that actually cannot pay for your services anymore. And so we, we need to bear that in mind. I mean, like, yes. People might be excited about the fact that cash is, is going downwards because it's just like more practical to, to pay with your phone. But the, the truth is that there are some people that are that desperately need it.
0: In the UK in particular, I saw a great stat that said e-commerce moved from around 20% of online, uh, of all retail transactions to around 30% almost overnight. And that's a behavior change that has not yet reversed, uh, which, which is just crazy. Um, Vigar, I'm interested, have you seen similar things where you are? Have you seen changes in behavior? Because I think to Miles's point, we've had this major event that has created this spike of behavior change that probably won't reverse very quickly.
3: Yeah, I think I think you're right on the e-commerce so we've seen the same uh, same movement towards e-commerce and it seems to be stuck at, at that high level uh, but then another movement that we've seen is the uh, digital payments within uh, physical context it's like replacing cards uh, moving e-commerce into a physical context where you pay at restaurants taxis haircutters being purely digital and removing the card terminals and that's maybe been the like the biggest Single shift that, and that's sticking as well. Uh, just because the consumer experience is that much better in utilizing digital payments in uh, in uh, in sort of a better consumer uh, experience, rather than just replacing a cash payment.
0: Uh, tell me what that would look like to a consumer, because I mean. I'm... The nerds on this podcast are probably quite familiar with Vips, but it might be worth sort of just um, reminding everybody what Vips is and does and how people were using it day-to-day and then how you would walk into a shop and then potentially use it um, that would be different from the day-to-day use of Vips historically.
3: Yeah, so just a very, very short recap on, uh, we started off with P2P payments, so building up a consumer base. So now we're covering almost 90% of the population in Norway on on a mobile wallet, so it's Pretty similar to to a PayPal uh, mobile payments wallet, but then we've extended with a range of different services. So bill payments, account uh, check, we even have a mobile subscription service. And now we're going into digital payments in physical context. So if you want to pay... Uh, Let's say your taxi with VIPs, uh, often the taxi driver already have your phone number from pre-ordering the the taxi. So the mobile wallet is just connecting your bank account with a phone number. So everywhere where your your phone number operates, you can pay using your bank account. Uh, So with with the taxi, the driver just asks you, do you want to pay by VIPs? And you say yes, and you get a push notification to your VIPs app. And while you're sitting in the backseat, not interacting with any terminal or QR code or anything, it's just an e-commerce integration to the taxi system.
0: I think that's a powerful um, piece there and, and moving it directly. You're almost like um, being triggered to push the money. It's kind of interesting how you're getting the notification, but then it's the consumer that's pushing the money to to the receiver. Um, if we can talk briefly uh, a little bit about sort of the spending patterns, there's this great stat here from Paysafe that says most uh Europeans and North Americans tried a new payments method in the last 12 months, around 60%. Um, And it speaks exactly to your point there, Vigo, that um, people are expanding what's happening in these new payments mechanisms. Um, But let's talk a little bit about the technology that's making it possible. Um, Keith, I'm going to come to you. Um, How much of a game changer has open banking been Certainly in the UK or the markets you look at historically for payments versus where it could go? Because are we still in the early days here? And can we also define uh, that just a little bit um, from a technology standpoint? What's different versus a card?
5: Yeah, I guess I'll start with the last question there. So, in terms of defining what open banking is and how it differs from a card, open banking is the idea that you as an individual or as a small business owner can access your bank account both in terms of data and moving money from it wherever you want via API. And this came into law in the UK and Europe as part of PSD2 uh, in 2019 and came into force in the UK as part of 2019. So we're only two years into it, a little less than two years, Uh, sorry, a little over two years. But I think it is still early days in terms of what this can actually accomplish, because what it means now is that in a mobile or digital world where everyone has their banking app on their phone already... This is a smoother process than a credit card payment. And in terms of you think when you what happens when you make a card payment right, there's a whole four or five steps in the process. We're talking to the acquiring bank, the issuing bank, the merchant, figuring out the authorization of the payment and then settling it. With open banking, what's happening is the user is saying, I want to push this payment out of my account. They're authorizing it immediately on their bank account and it's pushed and settled instantly. So there's far fewer steps. And it is just on mobile biometric authentication in the best flow. And so there is no typing in of card details, typing in of whatever. So it is a truly payment method designed for the mobile first world. And I think that's what's so exciting about it and why it's still early days in terms of what it's going to do in Europe yeah and to
0: your to your point it's it's not just e-commerce it's it's every type of payment that that could potentially um apply to sophie um is there any thoughts that you want to add to that in terms of uh where this could go and where we're at in that journey
2: yes so we have discussed that several times with uh, with kids because we have quite uh, like a lot of customers in uh, in common, like as as part of customer base. And what we have seen um, is really a massive acceleration on payment initiation, specifically over the past twelve months. Essentially, it's like real demand from consumer platform to really enable payment initiation to top up their wallets and really be able to own this customer relationship uh rather than having them like leave the platform top up, it's not really real time and come back and, and hope that the money arrives at um, at some point. So from, I would say, a banking as a service uh, perspective, and I'm sure Mike will be able to, uh, to add to that, but uh, essentially banking as a service clients uh, have moved from, okay, I just want the wallet and the payout solution, maybe the card acquiring to actually I want the full-blown solution because I want to own my customer. I want them to love my brand and just to be face-to-face with my brand all the time. And this is what open banking is really an ending.
0: Yeah, I really love that idea of democratizing how payments work um, mm-hmm. away from the brand a little bit. That's, that's really interesting. Miles, I mean, I know you've been a veteran of payments for some time and see lots of different payment types. How do you contextualize the impact that, open banking can have um compared to the other payment types yeah i think
4: yeah I mean, if you to the point of the research you just mentioned from Paysafe, i think it is allowing enabling people to um test new ways of, of doing things and, and whether that's the businesses in providing the services out or whether it's the consumers in what they are prepared to to accept and test and you know, to give a, a a small example we we have a a client that, that operates in the sort of taxi market and uh, um, and they've been able to deploy services to um, get over some of the hurdles and so yeah, back to that behavioral aspect of the taxi driver wanting cash for certain reason, and not wanting to take cards because it's expensive, the consumer wanting an easy or the passenger wanting an easy way to pay. And we have this client that's managed to pull together using our services an open banking capability where they've been testing with QR codes, they've been testing with text messages. And just seeing what the consumers will accept, what they'll adopt, what they're prepared to do to make that real time payment while the passenger's in the back of the taxi to, to get the cash to the, to the driver or to the company. So I think it's enabling in, in lots of small ways like that, people to test, learn, do things differently that perhaps weren't accessible before. And to, you know, to Keith's point, because there was this massive sort of ecosystem of complexity that people to be frank, struggle to understand. And the more we can simplify it, make it easy for people to work out how they can operate with it, I think people
0: will adopt it more easily. There's uh, a blogger called Bryn Hobart, um, writes a substack called The Diff, absolutely fantastic. If you've not checked it out, listeners, please do. Um, And he described, I think it was uh, Stripe and and I guess um, to a certain extent companies like Modular as well and and OpenPaid and, and everybody who does that sort of thing as being making payments work the way you would assume they work if you've never worked in payments because actually they, they're just so unbelievably broken and have all of this complexity. But there's this really nice thing about open banking is it's not just open payments or open data. It's the combination of the two. And actually, when you put those two together, really interesting things could start to happen. And we don't even know what those things are. How helpful would it be to be able to real time look at somebody's uh, transaction history, real-time, see if this is a fraudulent transaction, real-time, see um, credit worthiness, affordability in a single click um, that, that also sets up future payments. So the functionality you can start to build from a consumer side is interesting. But I actually want to take us to B2B as well, because it's not all consumers having all the fun. Um, what about business payments? How much innovation have we seen in the last few months, are we seeing an innovation in B2B payments? I don't know if anybody wants to jump in on that one.
4: Yeah, happy, happy to jump jump in. And, and I think, as you say, Simon, that um, it's easy to, to assume everyone understands how all of this works and, and, and therefore delivering the, the simplicity is really important. And the, and the innovation that we're we are starting to see is, is focused on what you might consider to be some quite basic aspects. So things like efficiency. Just being able to process payments um, without the various layers and moving money from one account to another account, being able to real-time confirm that the money's arrived um, through a webhook that customers can consume and build into their platform and tell their customers so they don't phone in and say, hey, did you receive the money? Because I'm not sure because you haven't told me. Um, and, and, you'd assume if you weren't in the payments industry, you build it in that way because it's simple. But we all know there are these layers that have had to be stripped back. So there's that basic sort of, um, efficiency, which is delivering on the, the customer expectation. And for, for us, that's one of the big things that's been coming forward. Uh, and it really, your point, which I really love about, um, the way people want to consume payments or the way they want to interact with them versus historically or even still today. The way we're told by the industry to, um, that's the way you have to do it. Uh, you have to consume. And so delivering on that customer expectation is, is really important. And the, it's the, 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 the last point that we're seeing as well is this shift in terms of participation in the ecosystem and also the monetization. So, um, to the, whether we call it integrated embedded payments finance, it's enabling a much broader set of people to, and participate in the economics of payments and and shifting that away from the traditional uh, providers so businesses can move away from their core software application or not move away from, but I should say add to in monetizing payments as part of it. And there's some great examples obviously in the e-commerce world but we're seeing that across many platforms and enabling um, software companies to become payment companies through, through integration through APIs. So that, that's where we're sort of seeing all of the Things bubbling away and creating innovation opportunities. Yeah, and in
0: the uh, better banking business models report um, that we put out, um, the stat that blew my mind when researching um, and the whole embedded finance space some months ago was that 55% of Shopify's revenue comes from financial services, and a lot of that is you know they are the canonical example of somebody who embedded finance took it in house, but also did so in a way that made more sense for their customers, and they already have a very well known partner in Stripe. It's just they they repackaged it and, and did so in a, in a powerful way and made it part of their business process. so I saw your hand go up. You want us to jump in there?
2: Yes, absolutely. So just a couple of points. So uh, to adopt Shopify, but Grab as well, obviously, because Grab as I think uh, now financial services is bigger than restaurants plus delivery. So like in, uh, in four years time, they have just taken financial services by, by storm by offering, uh, solutions to their drivers and to their restaurants in terms of, of banking and financing. So that was like for me, that Shopify and Grab are like the two, uh, massive example for that. Just wanted to also pop back on what my, was saying and maybe like wanted to bring a bit of a macro perspective. I fully agree with uh, everything uh, might have been saying, like in terms of instant payment and also the, the famous Swift GPI that is just a dream come true, I think, for, for a lot of organization. Um, but so for me, on a macro level, like the, the big trends that I have seen happening over the past 12 months and that I see accelerating right now is first of all consolidation. So where like payout players are going into pay-in, pay-in players are going into payout uh card processors that are offering uh bank ac- like bank accounts such as like Stripe, checkout, Viva Wallet, like you you name it. So you see that essentially, like while before it was one was uh owning a specific aspect of the value chain, now everybody gets it that you actually e- need to own the value chain of your customer for customer experience because the truth is that if your customer needs to integrate to five different providers to do a simple flow i mean it's what they have been doing so far but it's not going to be okay in the future so for me like this consolidation stuff is very very important and the second thing that i see right now um happening big time is localization like i think it's the number uh, one request of all my customers they want local IBANs um, first, because we have been hearing in the industry about, uh, IBAN, uh, discrimination, which is totally true in France, by the way, uh, which is horrendous because in term, when you are, we are talking about financial inclusion, when you cannot get bank accounts easily in a country. But on top of that, the most basic services such as social security don't take your foreign IBANs. I mean, you're a bit, uh, stuck, but Beyond that, um, localization of IBANs and payments means it's really an enabler of business. And while maybe before it was okay to only focus on UK and maybe the bigger markets, what you realize is that markets like, like Poland, for example, which is probably like number one request of our customers is getting a lot of attention. And actually like our financial uh, institution customers want to be able to provide this super sleek, local experience
0: i i think again it comes back to the way payments should work although that the, you would expect them to if you're not used to it vega are you seeing similar things as well that people are expecting payments to work a certain way and now able to get it and and especially in b2b are you seeing businesses like you're talking about e-commerce they're uh, really coming into different payment types
3: I think the major focus has been on consumer payments uh, in the Nordics uh, for now. But now that we've simplified consumer payments, a lot of the smaller companies, they approach us and say, now that you've made consumer payments, that simple. Why not uh, simplify the value chain on B2B as well? Because uh, many of the SMEs, you have to treat them as they are uh, consumers. They, they have their own business and they want to focus on their core business and not talk to all those six seven providers as uh, sophia mentioned so just to simplify the value chain on on smes is a huge uh, potential uh, and uh, open banking might provide some of the some of the solutions there as well
0: And, and that's a really good jump off point keith um tell me about like what pain we can remove for the market for smbs for businesses uh with open banking because uh like how is this stuff going to be any better
5: yeah, I think there's I think there's a few pain points that you're solving there. One is the speed of getting paid. And this rolls all the way through to cash flow for small businesses, which is the single biggest driver of small businesses taking on loans or taking on debt. So if you can solve that, you're, you're just directly impacting the bottom line of most SMBs. But the other thing I would add in there is you're automating a lot of processes that used to take finance teams' manual effort to do. So you're providing efficiency here. So th- again, where open banking comes into play is Via a single link, if you're a business, you can send out an invoice link to get paid with an automatic code attached to it. So you can reconcile it when it attaches on the back end. And as Miles saying, you get a web hook saying payment done. All of those were steps that used to be done manually by a finance team. So you're actually helping solve this pain point of making someone's job easier, which rolls through the whole company. I think the other thing, and this goes back to something you mentioned earlier, the advantage of open banking, right, is it's not just payments and it's not just data. It's payments plus data. What you're also opening up with these integrations with small businesses is a better ability to get visibility into how they're getting paid and where they're spending their money, which again, helps you if you're CFO or the owner of a small business, knowing where are my outflows going and why and how frequently. And open banking providers that can categorize, cleanse data, provide that back at the same time as offering these B2B payment innovations. I think it's just a home run for businesses. The issue you have is that I think business open banking portals and APIs typically had lagged the consumer ones. So consumers in the early days, and I think B2B is slightly earlier, but I actually think the pain points might be even greater on the B2B side in terms of what you're solving.
0: I wonder if it's, it's a bit of a metaphor here, but we saw with the, the challenger banks Um, And then especially in the US market, the neobanks, they started in consumer, but now actually everybody's excited about B2B and and I think about Ramp and Brex and Modern Treasury and that whole cohort of just massive growth businesses and the size of the pain and the size of the the target addressable market there. It's going to be really interesting to watch the next couple of years with open banking and B2B, that's for sure. Um, Speaking of really interesting, we are just going to take a quick pause whilst we're doing that and, and hear from our sponsors. We will be back very, very shortly.
5: Season two of the FinTech Marketing Podcast has landed. Join me, Eric Fulweiler, Chief Marketing and Commercial Officer here at 11FS, as I talk directly to some of the most influential CMOs in the world of FinTech and financial services. I'm gonna be asking them how they build brands, how they drive growth with modern day marketing. This season, I also have a new co-host, Mariette Ferreira, our marketing director here at 11FS. She will be talking to the people getting down and dirty on the marketing front lines with roundtable chats from some of the best in the business. Subscribe today on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss out. That's FinTech Marketing Podcast by 11FS.
1: Customers expect more from their digital experience and their personal finance is no exception. BlueShift empowers fintechs and financial institutions to create secure customer profiles and intentional, relevant experiences for customers. Whether in-app, on-site, in-branch, or anywhere else, BlueShift's smart hub CDP helps brands like LendingTree and ClearScore turn data into personalized experiences that increase retention, satisfaction, and revenue. Learn more about BlueShift at blueshift.com forward slash 11FS.
0: All right, let's continue this conversation by just looking at the vast amount of funding we've seen coming into the payment space, and how this is set to grow, even in emerging markets. Considering the amount of funding coming into the payment space, why now? Why is why is there so much money coming at payments right now? Um, is the, uh, who wants to take that point?
5: I, I could come in and, and offer my thoughts there. So I, I think a few things have happened. One is you know the the C word that Sophie mentioned. I think COVID made it clear to consumers, businesses, but especially investors, how important the shift to digital finance was going to be. And Simon, you mentioned that stat, right, of the increase in, in e-commerce take-up in the UK and how that's stuck there. I think that is driving this second-order thought of what are all the things needed to enable the shift to, di- to a digital world? And one of the huge ones is payments and payment infrastructure. And so you're seeing a real shift in focus there. I think the other thing is because of that, frankly, I think it was underinvested in as a segment over the preceding you know five or six years. Like this has always been a really important place. It's quite complex and convoluted. But now you're finally seeing I think the invested attention attention that um, this always deserved as a space, frankly. Yeah, it's, uh, we've seen
0: inter-switch across Africa. Uh, we've seen rapid payments. We've seen uh, countless uh, businesses that uh, really solve a, a part of the puzzle, a part of the geography, um, starting to really uh, gain momentum. And the funding valuations are enormous, uh, but also the size of the problem potentially is enormous. So it's going to be uh, interesting to see that.
5: I, yeah, and I think the the home runs that you've seen in terms of valuations with with Stripe and Checkout and others, but then also we've seen successful exits now with Wise recently. So like it's also clearly a space where. You can build a defensible business and take it all the way to fruition, which I think is exciting for investors too.
0: Well, and not forgetting Currency Cloud, who've been just acquired now by Visa um, for for a not uh, not tiny sum of money as well. Looking more specifically at cross border, but still, this is such a multi headed beast. Once you payments is is like the ultimate onion; it makes you cry, and there's so many layers to it. Um, Sophie, you had a a point you wanted to jump in with there.
2: Yeah. So that's why it's interesting, right? Like this uh, onion piece is, I think it's the reason why we are all into it is because we know there is a lot uh, actually to do. And it's not e- so easy to um, to understand. But going back to the funding grind, I think also, um, there is a lot of money available at the moment. And I think like the investors need to invest. And jumping back to what Kiss was saying is that yes exactly there is dry powder they know the problem is big they need know the path to monetization is not so complicated although the margin are shrinking because it's very commoditized but the volumes are so big that um the 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 monetization um is still there you know like there is a real business model towards it's like we are not there yet when payments will be free so i think for me it's An option for VC investors or bigger investors that is kind of a no-brainer. But the
0: interesting thing to me on that point, Sophie, is that um, if I look at a business, just take a completely different industry like Twilio, uh, in theory, SMS is super commoditized. But actually, a lot of what Twilio does is move up the value stack and away from the SMS into, hey, that telco didn't send your message successfully. I'm going to try another telco. Uh, so there's like dealing with things that go wrong in the infrastructure just on your behalf without you even thinking about it. Or they'll help you with a chatbot or they'll help you with security. And and I think that moving up all of the stuff around the payment is where the value has really come rather than expecting you to do that yourself. I mean, Miles, I imagine you see a lot of that in, in your day-to-day. Yeah, absolutely. And it gives somebody I mean really basic simple examples
4: of that exactly what you say, Simon, around the there's the processing the payment, but it's the value add around it. So if you think even back to where we started, what, four years ago in helping alternative lenders disperse funds, you think, well, how difficult can it be sending out money um, when they've decisioned a loan to the to the borrower? And and actually, the start point for us was, well, it's what they want is real-time payments. They want a 24-7, 90-second disbursement that's what we started selling and that still resonates and it's still a good service. However, when you start digging, as per your Twilio example, what else sits around it? And it's not about just about the speed, but it's about what if I send a batch of payments and the batch fails because one payment is wrong. And now I've got not just one unhappy customer, but I've got 50, 100, 1,000 customers versus actually sending API requests that enable you to confirm each individual payment has gone through or hasn't and then being able to remediate that and and the cost and the customer experience that that saves around it is immense and, and, and how you can solve for that and there's yeah, multiple examples we could talk to that we found by focusing on very specific problems
0: in specific industries where you can um, articulate that value. Yeah, I think that's such a key point, um, Vigor. I'm going to take us in a slightly different direction here as well. Um, you know, we talked at the outset a little bit about the removal of cash and financial inclusion. Um, have you seen uh, sort of some uh, some examples of that when you're looking at uh, digital payments types potentially helping push the boundaries in terms of financial inclusion in the markets where you operate? And 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 what has really enabled success in in removing cash but still including people?
3: Yeah, and I think financial inclusion is, normally you talk about that in emerging markets, but we've seen a large push in financial inclusion uh, in our relatively industrialized economy where uh, the gray economy with uh, NGOs, uh, fundraising, flea markets, garage sales, all of those used to be cash-based. There is no cash at all in any of these gray uh, informal uh, parts of the economy anymore and i think that's that's a undercommunicated part of the financial inclusion because then these guys get access to the traditional banking and traditional banking tools uh, even if they're uh, not professional businesses
0: Indeed, and I think that um, point you were making earlier, Sophie, on the things like IBans and the things like access to the infrastructure, uh, it's so often so difficult for people that are migrants, or so often people that have been undocumented, people who don't have an address um, and nowhere to stay. Um, how do we how do we start to tackle some of this? Because the technology is not all of it, surely.
2: I, I think like it's uh, it's twofold really it's about getting together so I think it's actually Nigel that started um this new ibandiscrimination.org uh, thing so I, I think like this topic deserves attention uh well on a UK level and the EU level because allowing even French organizations such as social insurance to not accept i from European Union is just horrendous. So I think it's um, it really starts with uh, with regulation in you know, all transparency, actually.
0: Transparency matters. Um, Keith, have you seen in your work um, any good examples of people using open banking to create financial
5: inclusion? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the exciting things that I, I wouldn't have guessed is such a, a hot use of open banking when I was first looking at the space, but we've seen amazing uptake is, how do you help people who don't own their house to move and not have to double dip into deposits or take their credit history with them when they are very thin file? And we're seeing a massive uptake in open banking there because it ties together all these aspects of affordability, creditworthiness, the ability to make payments simply, and that allows companies to front rental deposits, for example, which makes a real difference in people's lives if you're living paycheck to paycheck and you're trying to move flats. And so that's an example where I think of it's it's just tangible benefit right to consumers' wallets that is driven by just open access to data and payments um, through your own bank account. And so I think there are lots of examples of that as well, where you can start to see financial inclusion come in. I think the, the, the big thing to keep in mind, though, or the tricky part of this is open banking is tied to you having a bank account and being approved by a bank. And so there's still an aspect of digital identity and you have to be already part of the system. And that's the bridge that we need to cross with financial inclusion is for people that are living in a cash-based sort of off-the-grid world, how do you get them into the system and how do you provide them with a digital identity? That's going to be, I think, a key part of making sure payments then takes that next step in in the inclusion aspect as well. Vigo, you want to jump in there?
3: Yeah, I just wanted to add to uh, completely agree with Keith on the digital identity because that, that was the starting point for building successful digital uh, uh, wallets in the Nordics. We, we already had a digital identity with 100% of the population enrolled. so that That's sort of the starting point before rolling out successful payment uh, schemes or wallets. You need that digital identity.
0: Uh, uh, it's critical. We have seen that the government digital service in the UK has announced that it intends to look at building one. Hopefully it's better than the last effort, gov.verify, Verify, which was atrocious. Sorry, guys, but it was. Um, and then the uh, the EU has announced also its intent to create both a uh, a passport for uh, COVID vaccinations that is EU wide, but an intent to build that into a wallet over time for identity as well. So we may see progress on this. Again, it comes back to that COVID word um, that maybe it's it's forced people to realise. Oh my goodness, we we actually need to get our act together on some of this stuff. And there is a lot. We can learn from um, the Nordics and uh, indeed uh, the Netherlands, that has had this for some time. Uh, India, of course, many markets that have this are able to do a lot for financial inclusion in, in a really big way. Uh, Miles, what are your thoughts as you reflect on this conversation?
4: Well, I guess a, a quick comment on on the um, the digital identity there is: I do feel it needs a lot more government involvement. So, so what you describe where it's working well elsewhere in the world. Um, where it's not in the, in the UK and other com- countries, will it happen just naturally, or does it need some intervention? And I think there's some really positive cases where the UK has done well. Yeah, faster payments, the payments, is a great example where it was really government and regulatory interventions make it happen. Open banking is a great example as well around really encouraging or forcing or corralling people to to move in the right direction. And therefore, do we what do we need to make it happen? And does does COVID provide that that stimulus? In terms of where we're seeing other benefits, um, you mentioned SMEs um, already. Well, we're seeing that, I guess, inclusion from a different perspective of how you enable SMEs to operate to the or on a more level playing field with large corporates around efficiencies. So whether that's integration into accounting systems, payroll systems, where where you've had that challenge around being able to operate remotely or operate on the same sort of unit cost basis and that's where we're seeing leveling of the playing field through open banking through direct access and access to the
0: payment schemes which i think is bringing a um, a different type of inclusion well that leads me neatly to to my last piece which is what do we still need to fix? Because we've got some of the pieces, but like, what needs to happen next, Keith? I'm going to start with you. Like, what are the things? What are the big things we need to tackle in order to make uh, any of this a reality?
5: Uh, I, I'm going to follow through with the, with the theme that Miles was talking about there. But I think we do need increased enforcement of regulation when it's come into play, and making sure that regulation is actually serving the ultimate purpose that it was made for. I think there's aspects of open banking that need fixing. Um, either in future legislation or, or, or in some sort of fix to the current one. But I think also you need to hold a level of enforcement and standards there because I think there are some countries in Europe that are doing a great job at that and there are some that aren't. And it's going to make a really big difference in the level of adoption of these competing payment methods over time. The other thing I would add is, in a similar vein is I think we need to move to what's the best-in-class user experience for both consumers and businesses. And I think it is biometrics and app-to-app and, app and what you're seeing in the sort of top tier of open banking And that means we need to have open access to um, biometric capabilities on both Apple and Android devices. And I think this is part of the aspect of some of the antitrust rules that are coming in. But I think when you get to that world where everyone's used to making a payment just by double clicking their phone and face IDing or fingerprinting in, I think that's where we're headed. But there is a lot of work to do to make that uh, accessible across all applications and services.
0: Interesting. Thank you, Keith. Uh, Sophie, how about you?
2: No specific further thoughts on what Keith and Miles have been uh, mentioning, actually.
0: Okay, okay. Vega, what do we need to um, what do we need to improve uh, going forward, uh, and, and what do we need to make better in order to make this dream a reality?
3: I think collaboration is one of the one of the biggest, uh, maybe it's like business hurdles to success in some of the European markets now, because incumbent players are competing in in areas they should be more collaborative on uh, combined with good regulation that that should pave the way for Better infrastructure, better consumer services, and better merchant services. So I think, that, and that's a sort of a business challenge that's not only for the regulators, but uh, for big banks, for example, in some markets, to uh, find areas of collaboration. Otherwise, they're going to be eaten by the big ecosystem players while they compete for small market shares in their local markets.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I remember when open banking first came around. We discussed that on Fintech Insider episode number one um, way back in the day. And and I think it was uh, David made the point that it was all stick and no carrot from the way the banks uh, were, were, were looking at it. But it doesn't have to be the case. Uh, and actually, this can be uh, a rising tide lifts all. Um so collab- stop, collaborate, regulate, um, let's improve this for consumers, for businesses, because more transactions happening with more data, um surely in an open ecosystem, creates a-, a spirit of competition. So um just trying to vaguely summarize what I think I heard you guys say there, which is which is super. Uh, exciting and compelling. Um, So like, yeah, this payments notary, this onion uh, has not made us cry. It has actually made a phenomenal meal um, because what a great ingredient it is to to, uh, all kinds of dodgy metaphors. Um, But that wraps up this discussion for today. Thank you so much for joining me, everybody. Uh, Where can people find out more about you and what you're up to, uh, Vega?
3: on uh, vips.io so vi sio
0: and listeners if you haven't checked out vips and it's and it's, you're unaware of it please do because it's a great case study for every other market to learn from uh, Sophie how about you
2: yeah so me uh, Sophie Gibo, on LinkedIn obviously where I am most of the time and otherwise open paid with a y.com
5: open paid with a y.com uh, Keith how about you plaid.com for for all things plaid and open banking and then you can find me on twitter at km gross and miles you can find
4: uh, modular at modularfinance.com and modular without an a and then you can find me
0: on linkedin at miles c stevenson modular without an A uh, open paid with a Y Um, let's just change spelling let's just do it let's remix it it feels very Simpsons I'm here for it Um, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter uh, or you can find out more about us at 11FS.com remember if you liked this conversation go ahead and subscribe just hit that subscribe button it's right there just give it a little tickle and remember to leave us a review it helps others find the show and it helps us make the show better tell us what you want to see more of less of all of the above
5: thank you so much and bye for now